be seated. If you uh, have brought a Bible, now would be a really good time to turn to Romans chapter 4 as we continue a series of messages throughout the book of Romans. But today we're going to do a little um, different approach in that we're only going to read verse tw 25 of Romans 4 which I believe is derived from a sort of a creedal statement that points back to Isaiah 52, verses 13 through chapter 53, verse 12, uh, the song of the suffering servant. And so that's going to be the territory and ground we will cover today. And so beginning in Romans, hear now the word of the Lord. Well, I think I'll take it up to probably verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, that is Abraham, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, you can turn over to Isaiah 53. I'm going to read it in portions rather than the whole thing. Um, what I'm trying to do is I preached on Isaiah 53 probably four or five times, and I actually have three sermons on it. So you're getting three in one today. And I know what some of you are thinking, oh, no, we're going to be here forever. Uh, if you listen and pay attention, it will pass faster than you can imagine. Before we jump into Isaiah, though, it would be good if we pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for being able to gather together as your people and give you worship, and we thank you that you are there and you are not silent, that you have spoken and you have spoken to us. Uh, from your word and we pray today that both word and spirit would have their way in our hearts as we again visit the nature of guilt substitution and grace that we will see what you were willing to spend and we will see Lord Jesus how you were willing to be spent so that we could have righteousness and forgiveness of sins and I pray we'll never forget what we hear today. I pray it will be engraved upon our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. You know, Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says, God declares forever to be right with himself those who are ungodly. Now, what we would expect God to say in every case would be, if you're good, God blesses you. If you're bad as a person, God punishes you. But that's not how God does the math. That's not how God saves people. It isn't that kind of equation at all. Uh, the gospel says that God justifies the ungodly. And that is counterintuitive to everything we think we know. The gospel disagrees with the idea that God rewards people who try to do the best they can. Uh, 
What the gospel means is this, and it's scandalous, and sometimes we lose the edge and nature of the scandal of the gospel. And the scandal of the gospel is, it means this, that God declares guilty people innocent, the guilty innocent. It means that God treats bad people as if they were good people. That goes beyond the power of miracle. It is a scandal. And are you open to the arch scandal of the gospel? Are you open to the mega miracle of how God in Christ declares you his own and declares you to be righteous because he's delivered up his son for you and has raised him from the dead, vindicating his son and his life and his righteousness. Now, how does God justify the ungodly? And we're going to turn in a moment to Isaiah 52 and following to understand how God does this. But we are so needy of this kind of response from God. When we discover how deep in denial we are about the shape of our souls, it is astounding. It is astounding. Uh, we try to cover up everything that's wrong with us through some sort of self-righteous strategy of soothing and assuaging our conscience and our guilt. As a matter of fact, in our day and time, most people laugh guilt off. They said that's an archaic notion of a pre-modern society. And this idea of shedding blood and this idea of going to the cross and bearing in his body our sins is an antiquated idea. People aren't guilty. Nobody's guilty. Nobody has any standards. You have no right to tell me I'm guilty, but you act like it every minute. You're living in denial. You're floating in that boat on the Nile in Egypt called denial. <laughs> That's what you're doing. And you don't see it. And you don't sense your guilt, but we sense the guilt by the fruit of it. We're always trying so hard to cover up for ourselves. We don't want people to know when we fail. We don't want people to know what's in our closet and the scandal of our lives. And we don't want people to sense that we're anything less than the best. We're living our best life now, some TV preacher says. Most dangerous man in America. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that it liberates us. But we have, the reason why we try to justify ourselves so much is because we are guilty. We're guilty of sin. And we struggle with it, and our consciences struggle with it, and we feel condemned by it. So we try to pass the buck. We try to shift the blame to other people. It's not really my fault. If you had been in this situation, you would have done the same thing. Well, I did the best I could. We've got a thousand, a million excuses, but it never takes away the stain of our guilt. We like to blame other people. Children blame their parents. Husbands blame their wives. Wives blame their husbands. Employees blame their employer. Employer blames their employees. Democrats blame the Republicans for everything that's wrong in the world. And Republicans blame Democrats for everything that's in the world. 
but there is no one righteous, no, not one, the apostle says. We try to justify ourselves because that's the way we try to cover up our guilt. And the Bible tells us very good news. It's guilty people that God justifies because that's the only kind of people there are. There is no one who can say, I have not sinned in his sight. After years of denial, one of my baseball heroes, Pete Rose, finally admitted to betting on baseball. It took him a long time. And everybody knew it. Uh, people have to understand. This is Pete Rose's comment. He says, people have to understand. I wish this would have never happened, but I can't change it. It happened. And sitting here in my position, you're just looking for a second chance. Every one of us understands that. We're all trapped in consequences we didn't intend, but we did set in motion. Every one of us looks at something in the past and I agonizes. If only I could relieve that one moment of my life. If only I could trade in my record for a better one. But how can we? It's too late. We're all like Lady Macbeth washing her hands, uh, part in murder and moaning. Out, damned spot, out, I say. Here's the smell of blood. Still, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And as Macbeth sees his wife coming unhinged under the distress, he says to a doctor, Can you not minister to a mind disease, pluck from the memory of a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart? Do you remember how the doctor replies? The doctor says the following, Therein the patient must minister to himself. Is that our answer, to medicate ourselves with some sweet oblivious antidote, entertainment, overwork, romance, achievement? What makes our unbearable guilt go away? Who can bear it for us? And the answer is given to us in the beautiful narrative in Isaiah 53. God wants to glorify himself by flooding our lives with the sin-bearing mercy in Jesus Christ. The only barrier to being awash in freshness and joy and release is when we cling to our guilt by clinging to our own righteousness. All our guilt must go to Christ and all our righteousness must come from Christ. This is God's way of release for guilty people. And there is no other in the famous passage Isaiah portrays as success and the sufferings and the significance of the servant of the Lord with five paragraphs of three verses each. And so open your Bibles to Isaiah. We're in 52 and we're going to begin in verse 13 of Isaiah. And the first uh, section that he speaks of, and you have it denoted in your bulletin and outline, the servant's success. Jot down, if you're a note taker, the following. He was repulsive but redemptive. He, speaking of Jesus, was repulsive but redemptive. 
So this is a servant song. It's the fourth one in Isaiah. It's made up of five strophes or stanzas or verses in each address a dimension of the person and work. This was written 680 to 700 years before Jesus was born by the prophet Isaiah. And so miracle <laughs> invades the reality of this text before us. Let's get to it. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah is describing Jesus Christ in his mission into this world and that it succeeded. That's what act wisely means when uh, referencing Jesus. Jesus knew what to do to achieve his purpose and what he did was efficacious, that is, it worked. He rose from the dead, he was lifted up to the right hand of the Father, and he reigns on high with all power and all authority. The suffering servant of the Lord is not to be pitied, but rather worshipped and adored. So, the suffering servant of the Lord, we believe to be the Lord Jesus Christ, is to uh, be worshipped. He is to be adored. Uh, the first thing we notice about a crucified Savior is how he looks. And he looks crucified. Look with me uh, in the following verse, verse 14. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond hum human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Isaiah is connecting here as and so how repulsive Jesus became in his suffering. Utterly repulsive. For us, with how effective he is in purifying us. Jesus was beaten badly by the Roman soldiers. He didn't even resemble a human being. Now this was for no fault of his own, for no sin of his own, for no guilt of his own, but he was pummeled, he was beaten, his beard was plucked out, and he became, as it were, gross, disfigured, shameful, impossible to look at. People turned their faces from him. They shunned him as he went to the cross to bear our shame and our punishment. So the question was, is he human? But in a paradox worthy of God, it was his extreme suffering that measures his extreme power to cleanse from sin. As many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Uh, Isaiah here is referring to what I Israelite priests used to do. For example, when a leper was cleansed, a priest sprinkled blood on him to show that his disease was washed away and he was healthy now and he was really able to be accepted back into the community. And this is what Jesus does with us who are moral lepers. And on the Day of Atonement, a priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, making Israel fit for the presence of God. 
Even the priests themselves had to be sprinkled with water of purification. But Christ is both our priest and our sacrifice. And he doesn't need to be cleansed. In fact, the sprinkling of his blood is pure enough and lavish enough to cleanse many nations. He touches the unwashed and the unclean and the outsiders, and he makes us fit for the very presence of God. This is something new. All the world's top experts never thought of removing guilt this way, that the servant of the Lord would judge our evil by bearing it in himself, in his life, and in, in his own sufferings. Even we who know the gospel through and through struggle at this point to grasp it. But this was the joy set before him. The reason Jesus pursued the cross, the reason Jesus, though praying three times that this cup would pass from him, was for the joy set before him. And what was the joy set before him? Us, believers who are cleansed by the blood of Christ. That was his joy. You never have joy in your life till you know how to sacrificially give yourself away to someone else. If you're demanding people serve you and you're demanding people love you on your terms, you don't know and I don't know the first thing about love. But what exhilarated the soul of Jesus, sometimes I'm faced with stuff that I don't really want to do. <laughs> Ain't we all? <laughs> but sometimes as a minister, I, I'm, I'm being called upon to go into a very difficult situation. My soul sort of shrinks back from it because I wonder, just like all the rest of you, how in the world am I going to minister to this person? How in the world am I going to be able to say anything to encourage them and help them? And I'm beginning to stop. And every time I just cry out to the Lord and say, I got nothing. Help me. Please, Jesus, help me. And it is astounding what the Lord gives me every single time. And when I go and do that thing I was so dreading before, I have such a flood of joy in my soul. Why is it we have no joy? Because we don't know how to love. How do you love? You give yourself. You give yourself. You sacrifice. There is no love possible without sacrifice. And that's why we were his joy set before him. Here's the wisdom of God. The joy set before him to cleanse the very ones who were dehumanizing him. One solitary man abandoned around and ground into the dirt uh, and under our heel, giving to us to return life-transforming purity is the only way lepers like us will ever be healed. Before him we are left in speechless in wonder. You know, once you understand the gospel, you no longer have to defend yourself anymore. You can just say, yes, Lord, you are right when you speak. Your word is truth, and it exposes me, and it shows me my underbelly, as it were. Because Christ himself bore it in his body on the tree. It's the only way, and before him we are left in speechless wonder. Here's the wisdom of God, the undeserved sufferings of Jesus Christ outperforming the best of this world's sweet, oblivious antidotes. And that the mission of the church is not to offer the world 
a Christianized version of their own false salvation, but to communicate a good news they've never seen or heard before. If people do not sense the gospel is saying something unheard of in the uh, unusual or usual remedies for human misery, are we speaking clearly? Now let's move on to the next one. Not only was he repulsive, but redemptive. He lived in rejection. You ever been rejected? Never a pleasant experience, is it? Whether it happened to you in kindergarten <laughs> or it happened to you yesterday. Being rejected is awful. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The nation's response to the servant was with an awed silence as the gospel reveals his true worth. But in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, the believing remnant of Israel laments how few in that nation have believed their witness. The people closest to Christ couldn't understand him. Knowing him personally as a man in the neighborhood, many knew him that way and didn't make belief, unbelief impossible. It took faith to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. How do we break the faith barrier and embrace Jesus Christ crucified as our only Savior? Faith enables it. How? His arm is the power of God. And flying <laughs> low under the defensive radar of our prejudices and self-righteousness and awakening in our hearts a new sense of the glory of Jesus. It is a miracle anytime, anyone, anywhere, ever exercises saving faith. It is the gift and the very power of God. Now, I remember sharing the gospel with people often, and they would say things to me like this. Well, you know, Pastor, uh, what you're saying I've heard before, and I think, you know, you're probably right about some things, but I'm young, and I just want to go on and live my life, kind of party, have a good time, do what I want to do, and then when I get old, like you, I'll turn around and repent, and I'll believe in Jesus. And I remember looking at one of them square in the face, and I said, don't you dare say to me that you can turn and believe to Jesus anytime you want to. You do not have that power within you. And only by the grace of God will he ever give you the power to turn from your sins and to turn from trusting in your goodness and in yourself and turning totally to Jesus. It is not within you. You are dead in trespasses and sins and don't you ever think God owes you anything he doesn't I don't know if that was the right thing to say but it felt good <laughs> I hope that fellow did hear what I said but uh, I thought it needed saying <laughs> so how do we ever 
find our way in. We find our way in through miraculous faith. Do not think if you had been an eyewitness of Jesus that you would have admired him. Not even his miracles make the impact they should have made. His very own family misjudged him. While he traveled with his disciples, it wasn't at all like the movies you normally see. Jesus didn't have backlighting and a holy glow about him and a, a, a halo on his head. Uh, the woman at the well had no idea who was talking to him. Even John the Baptist became uncertain about him. Our Lord just wasn't spe uh, special in ways that count with us. In fact, he became hideous in his sufferings so that people shunned him as the one from whom men hide their faces. Why did the servant of the Lord sink so low? He had to become like us for us to become like him. But if we'd been there, every one of us would have despised and rejected him and turned away to follow after really cool people. Maybe we would have thought Barnabas was some, or Barabbas was some kind of hero, or Caiaphas or Pilate, depending on our political view. That's who we are. We see no beauty in him. We see no glory in him. What the only true remedy for the guilt that we suffer from that tortures us and threatens us with eternal destruction and appears right in front of us, our emotions were dead, our decisions misguided, our minds corrupted, and he accepted it as the price of love and the debt to pay that he pays to give us back our lives. You don't think he would have been saying along with the crowd, crucify him? Surely you would. And surely I would. You don't think you would have despised and rejected him? Surely you would. And surely I would. He was our sin bearer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah writes as if he was there at the cross. But, but because in one sense we were there at the cross. It wasn't our guilt that required the death of Jesus. What did? Remember Rembrandt's painting called The Raising of the Cross, how he paints himself into the picture as one of the men crucifying the Lord. He not only portrays Jesus, but he includes himself in the scene. Isaiah is doing that here, not with a brush on a canvas, but with a pen on paper. He's not only describing Jesus, he's telling us our story too. We cannot say, if I had been there, I wouldn't have shouted, crucify him. And yet Isaiah brings us to the heart of the message. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus really was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his sorrows. They were ours. He didn't deserve them. They were our sorrows. In a way that we'll never understand, Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. God has done what we 
have no right to do. God has shifted the blame to Jesus Christ. As he died for guilty people, God has pointed the finger. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and theologians refer to this term as imputation, charging to the account of someone else. Guilt must be paid for. It can't be swept under the rug. You know that from your own experience as a person living in this world. We all demand things to be put right. How did God confront it? How did he pay for the damage we had done? How does God deal with it? God charged the infinite debt to a substitute, Jesus Christ, put himself in the place of sinners. The unbearable weight of our guilt was imputed to him, and he sank under it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the love of God. Substitution is the very meaning of love. But as we look at Jesus and we look at him by faith in him, there on his cross, what it's saying to you by his sacrifice is this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look at him. By faith, see his dying love for you. What is it worth? His blood is flowing down into pools at the foot of the cross, but he doesn't lie there in waste and loss. It flows out toward us, guilty, sad, us. His blood flows out toward a woman who has shamed herself in a desperate craving to be loved. His blood washes her shame clean off of her. That shame flows back to the cross where it shames Jesus. and is no longer her burden to bear. The blood of Jesus flowing out to sinners and all of all kinds taken from them, their guilt and their shame, their loss, their tears, their despair, their giving them through the process a whole new life. Jesus is saying to you right now, I don't want you to bear your burden one moment longer. Let my chastisement give you peace. Let my stripes heal you. We are all like stupid sheep wandering off from him through our futile self-remedies and self-righteous excuses. Who can deny it? But look at what God has done. God has laid Christ uh, on him, the iniquity of us all. Believe it and entrust your guilt to him. He can bear it and survive, but he's still willing to to bear it for you. Every priest on the Day of Atonement would take a lamb without spot or blemish, and the priest would lay his hands on the head of that animal and transfer the sins of the people of Israel to the head of that animal. And then that animal represented the bearing of our sin and guilt, and the guilt was. But there was another animal often, often offered called the scapegoat and a goat again the priest would lay his hands on the goat and then they would take the goat and drive it out of the city and if you know anything about the crucifixion of Jesus it was outside the camp of Israel it was on Golgotha's hill the hill of the skull and there Jesus not only 
was sacrificed as a lamb, but he was driven away forever to be gone under the power of our guilt as our scapegoat. He is a scapegoat par excellence, and he is to be adored and worshiped. And so, the next section, as you listen quickly with me, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, uh, cut, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. As we all know, the death of Jesus was a miscarriage of human justice, but it was also our Father's ultimately wise, clear-headed choice. Jesus wasn't caught in a web of events beyond his own control. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. I remember as a kid singing that song, he could have called 10,000 angels to come and rescue him. But I believe he could have in a moment spoken and everything would have ceased. But verse 7 compares Jesus to a lamb, as a lamb led to a slaughter as a sheep silent before its shearers. What is the point? His death was not a capitulation to weakness, but an exercise in deliberate power and control. He was not oppressed, overpowered. Uh, he chose not to fight back. He stood up in humble service for the sick, the wicked, and without question or objection, he received what came from man or God without any protest whatsoever. And there, was, and there was no way he deserved the abuse he received. Verse 8 laments how thoughtlessly he was gotten rid of. He was just another execution. But verse 9 said that he had done no violence. That there was no deceit in his mouth. In both his actions and his words, he died in entire total innocence. The final indignity was to be buried not alongside with martyrs and saints, but with the wicked rich. Who but Jesus has the moral majesty to serve you as your substitute? Only innocent sufferings can atone for guilty sufferings. If the story of Jesus had ended there in his grave, his heroism would have been admirable but futile. The empty tomb proved that there was more to his death than anyone could ever realize. And we're closing in on the end. He was crushed, but victorious. He was crushed, but victorious. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By the knowledge shall the righteous ones, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide a portion 
with many and shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so the death of Jesus Christ was more than just a human plot and machination. It was a divine strategy. And at the cross, Jesus was doing the absolute pure will of the Lord. And he wasn't embittered by it. He didn't hang from his cross screaming curses at his tormentors the way other victims did, nor did he blaspheme God. He, re he received and perceived the torments as the saving will of God. This is the mystery of the cross. It was on that instrument of human torture that Jesus Christ made his soul an offering to God for other people's sin. The cross, therefore, was never to be considered as a defeat. In Isaiah's prophetic eye, he can see that Jesus was taking the initiative by his death, making the will of God prosper in the most improbable way imaginable. At his cross, Jesus achieved the ancient purpose of God with victorious love. This is why his death produces life in us. He shall see his offspring. Who are they? All of us who benefit from his death when he justifies us. In verse 12, Isaiah uses a military metaphor to describe this. Jesus divides the spoils of his victory with us as his strong partners in God's saving plan. The world perceives his followers as little more than a band of fugitives and a bunch of losers. But through Christ's justifying crosswork, we are enriched beyond all measure. We possess all things worth possessing. As Jesus stands back and looks at God's saving plan, as he measures the price he must pay to succeed, how does he feel about it? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The Isaiah scroll from Qumran inserts an interpretive word here. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light. Anguish was not his final emotional experience. His anguish led to a dawning of a new light, a victorious joy, looking on what he accomplished for his people. By his passion, Christ is satisfied. Why? Because he's the kind of person who enjoys clearing sinners of their guilt and accounting them righteous, though it demands he bears the iniquity upon himself. Let me say this. Jesus was not a reluctant, reluctant victim. He willed to undergo this destruction in order to save us. And when you look at the cross, it shows us what it took to save people like us. That's what it took. That's what he had to do for our sins to be forgiven. And when God raised him from the dead, the life he lived in our place and the death he died in our place was declared forever to be our justification. That simply looking away from ourselves. If you remember in the Old Testament, there was a um, snake on a pole. <laughs> in the Old Testament, uh, 
The snake represented the curse, and people were dying and being bitten by snakes. And, and so God told Moses to construct a pole, and he set that pole up, and at the top of that pole was a snake curse the curse, the curse, and God told him to look at the pole and live. Look at the pole and live. Look and live. Huh. And of course, that sounded stupid to everybody there. What do you mean snakes are biting me, man? Looking at a pole with a snake on the top of it, how is that going to help me? But the snake on the pole was the curse of God, the crown of thorns upon his head, and it represented and pointed to ultimately the one who would undergo the curse of God on our behalf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And the way we are saved is look and live. Have you done that? Have you looked outside of yourself? And have you drawn life from the life-giving Savior by looking to him? And him alone. Christ overpowered the grave. Christ rose from the grave. Who else can love you that miraculously? Who else can love you that fully, that helpfully? Who is willing? Who else in the world would ever be your scapegoat, would step into it in your place? What are you waiting for? Jesus is not reluctant about giving you himself. He will freely give you himself if you come to him with the empty hand of faith. And so that's what Paul meant in Romans 4, 25. He was delivered up. He was delivered up for our sins and raised again for our justification. Let us pray. Father, I do pray today that these words would find their way into our hearts in such a way that they would overpower us, that they would create an impression in us that is so profoundly deep and so transforming. And I pray you will help me as one who believes, as one who has been graced and received the gifts of faith and repentance. I pray you'll help me focus upon the cross we know that the same apostle said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. Lord, may it create in us a passion for holiness, a desire to love and serve you best and most. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give back a portion of that which you've entrusted to us, and may we do it with joy and hilarity because of your sweet forgiveness and because of your impeccable righteousness that is now ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.